passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. God, even as the words of that song say that you have washed us white as snow, we are so, so very thankful for that. That even though sin had left a stain as deep and as dark as crimson, we are now washed white, clean, pure through your death on the cross. What a wonderful Savior we have. What an incredible gift he has given to us. And God, as we desire to live our lives wholly dedicated to you, I pray that you would enable us to do so, God. As we approach your word this morning, we pray that you would come, that you would speak to us, and that you would form us more and more into the image of your Son. We pray these things in his wonderful, beautiful name. Amen. When you think of courage, what comes to mind? Maybe for some of you, you probably think of fearlessness in the face of danger. More accurately, you think of overcoming that fear in the midst of danger. We have countless examples of courage that we can see throughout our history books. Richard the Lionheart, who uh, conducted and commanded his own army at the age of 16 to fend off rebellions against his father. Joan of Arc, who died in the middle of the French and English War at just the age of 19. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pacifist and knew that it would possibly cost, cost him his life and yet decided to do the right thing and resist Nazi Germany. Harriet Tubman, who risked her life countless times to lead other slaves to freedom. And then, of course, George Washington, of whom it was written in the French and Indian War. But in this hellish hail of bullets and death, Washington first showed himself as a man of legendary courage and passion on the field of battle. History records that, quote, Washington alone, out of Braddock's aides, emerged unscathed, through it, though his hat and coat were riddled with bullet holes, and two horses were shot from beneath him. Washington never ran. He stood and fought with great valor. We as a culture admire courage. That's why the biggest and most successful box office hits in Hollywood are often movies that center around courage. Earlier this week, Star Wars Episode 7 became the most uh, successful uh, movie in domestic box office history, just primarily because it was a story of courage. Lord of the Rings, The Avengers, American Sniper, Unbroken, more. All of these movies, movies focus on courage and courage within each and every one of us. See, courage is something that resonates deeply. Something that all of us look to and say, I want that. I want to be courageous. And of course, we feel great shame when we are cowardly and turn our back and the moments of opportunities for courage. I think one of the most clearly, one of the clearest displays of courage in history is found in Genesis chapter 14. It tells of a wonderful, daring rescue on Abram's behalf 
for his nephew Lot. It tells us the story of international conflict. It tells us the story of oppression and rebellion, of slavery and destitution. It tells us the story of rescue and the return to hope. As we begin this morning, we're going to continue working our way through Genesis, looking specifically at the life of Abram. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Abram's life, and we've seen the highest highs in his life, as well as the lowest lows. We've seen that he has been chosen by God, that he has been promised a great family, and yet he is without child. We've seen Abram promise that God will protect him and will provide for him. And yet in the next chapter, Abram is running from God, seeking provision and protection in Egypt. Through all of these highs and through all these lows, God is at work in Abram, shaping him, molding him, making him more like God. And when we turn to Genesis chapter 14, we see that that is not an exception God is continuing to work on Abram. Abram is a wealthy shepherd as we open to Genesis chapter 14, but we see a new picture of him. After he has trusted God in chapter 13 to provide for him, to keep his promises to him, we see a new side of Abram. No longer is Abram just a wealthy shepherd, but now he is a powerful, heroic general leading his troops on a daring rescue mission to save the people of the Valley of Sidon. As we explore this new side of Abram, what we're going to see is we're going to see a great deal about courage. We're going to learn a lot about courage. In fact, if there's only one thing that you take from this passage, I hope it's this. True courage trusts God to fulfill his promises. True courage trusts God to fulfill his promises. The exemplary courage of Abram in Genesis chapter 14 is rooted in his faith. It's rooted in his trust that God will fulfill his promises to Abram. And from that place, courage springs forth. As we look at this story, you might look at Abram and feel inadequate. You may feel like you are never going to be able to show that same type of courage. But the good news for us this morning is that Genesis 14 not only reveals to us what true courage is, but it also reveals to us where it comes from. True courage trusts God to fulfill his promises. True courage comes from a relationship with God, communion with God. If you have a Bible, I, open, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 14 as we look at this story, starting in verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Cato-Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Cato Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Cato Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim at Asheroth Carneum, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Sheva Kiriathim. And the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh. 
and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. What is this passage telling us? Beyond being the worst nightmare for someone who has to read that in front of you, what is this passage trying to describe to us? Well, it starts like any other good story. Starts a long time ago in a country far, far away. But unlike other stories that I might have to pay a copyright royalty to, this is not one that is made up. The story opens, and it might be a little surprising to us because there's no Abram. Abram is nowhere to be seen. Instead, we see a conflict between two groups of kings. We'll call these kings first the Mesopotamian coalition and then the kings of the Valley of Sidim. There was a powerful king ruling over much of modern-day Iran. His name was Cato Laomer. In your bulletin, you'll actually see a couple maps that we've included as inserts just for you to follow along to see where all of these places are located. Cato Laomer ruled the people of Elam which was located in modern-day Iran. He ruled from the Caspian Sea in the north to the Persian Gulf in the south. He ruled a great swath of territory. And even though he was located a thousand miles away from Abram and Lot, his influence was great. For he had allied himself with other kings. He had allied himself with two kings from modern-day Iraq and a king from modern-day Turkey. And together, their alliance controlled giant swaths of territory only dwarfed by the Egyptian empire at the time. They ruled with an iron fist, demanding great tribute from all the vassal cities and smaller nations and city-states that dwelt in their territory. And included in this group of oppressed nations was a group of five kings that lived on the southeastern edge of the Dead Sea. For 12 long years, they had lived in oppression, paying tribute to Cato Laomer and his other kings. But after 12 long years, they had had enough. They were tired of being ruled by kings located hundreds of miles away and refused to pay. They knew what they were getting themselves into. News traveled slowly all the way back to Cato Laomer, but they knew that they were inviting conquering armies to come pay them a visit in the not-so-distant future. And so from the moment they refused to pay their tribute, they began preparing for battle, knowing that it was coming on the horizon. And news did indeed travel slow. For a year, the citizens of the Valley of Sitting lived in peace, had time to prepare for this great battle. But as sure as the leaves change in the fall, and as sure as the calendar moves forward, they began to hear rumors of war off in the distance, far in the north. We see the first conflict in the far north near a place called Ashtaroth. As the Mesopotamian coalition, named Mesopotamian coalition because most of the, the, the kings were located in Mesopotamia. As they journeyed south, they were intent on squashing any other rebellion that the kings of the Valley of City might have inspired. And so they started by defeating the Rephaim. We see in the book of Deuteronomy that the Rephaim are described as giants. And right here at the beginning of the Mesopotamian coalition's march toward the valley. They defeat the greatest opposition, the greatest threat to their continued rule over the area, the Rephaim. They squash them. 
like bugs. What hope did the people of the valley have in remaining free from this coalition? So the coalition continues south, continues their bloody conquest. And surprisingly, they reach the valley, and yet they continue to move south. They continue to go far south until they reach the tip of the Red Sea. Once they get there, they cut west and destroy the Amalekites at Kadesh and the Amorites at Tamar. And we might wonder why. I think there are a couple reasons. First, they wanted to put out every other fire of rebellion that the kings of Sidim had lit. Second, they wanted to cut off any source of support that they might have relied on in the midst of their battle. And third, they just plain wanted to strike fear into the hearts of the people of the valley, circling them slowly like a shark, ready for the kill. For a year, the kings of the valley had had time to prepare, and now the people, the the armies of the Mesopotamian coalition stood at their doorstep. Conflict was upon them. Let's continue looking at Genesis chapter 14, picking up in verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Cato Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. The rebellion of the valley has been completely, utterly destroyed. They are fighting on their home turf with nearly a year to prepare. And one would think that the people of the valley would have the upper hand here. But no one could stand against the might of the power of the four kings of the Mesopotamian coalition. Armies destroyed. Everyone fled, trying to survive. Some fled to the hilltops, trying to leave and escape the wrath of the far away overlords who had defeated them. Notice what else the text says. Some faced a worse fate. Rather than fleeing to the hills, they fell into pits of tar. The word here for pit is referring to hand-dug wells, and so it's very apparent that the people of the valley had been digging wells, and then they fell into them. Maybe a more accurate, or more accurate translation, however, than falling into these wells is they actually lowered themselves into these pits. And here, in a story that tells us of courage, we see the epitome of cowardice. The kings of these armies have seen their armies routed, their cities pillaged, and they decide to hide among the bodies of the slain by jumping into pits of tar. The defeat of the valley is complete. The uprising is completely and utterly destroyed. And so the the armies of the Mesopotamian coalition turn their attention to the citizens of these rebellious cities. And the, the text is mercifully silent on what happens Next, it spares us the horrific details of what happens, but one can assume that citizens were tortured and killed, children were hacked to pieces, women were raped, and those who were surviving all of these atrocities were chained together and carted off to faraway lands as slaves. 
the uprising was over. Of course, notice how the text ends. It ends on a note of great sorrow. Lot himself has been taken. Who knows what was going through Lot's mind when he was headed back northward in chains. Returning back to his homeland, no longer a wealthy shepherd like his uncle Abram. But instead, now a slave without any hope. The rebellion had been defeated, or had been conquered. The battle was over, and the kings of the Mesopotamian coalition had reasserted their control over the region, cutting through the nations that stood in their path like a hot knife through butter. No one was able to turn them away. But the text doesn't follow them back on their victory path. It doesn't tell us of their journey home, how they journeyed home richer, uh, more powerful, drunk with the euphoria of victory. Instead of following them back, it instead turns to one person who survived the fight. And this person making a dangerous journey to the only person who could possibly help them. Let's continue in Genesis chapter 14. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkel and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been ca- taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and declared and defeated them. And pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back all the kin- brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions and the woman and the people. In just these few short verses, we see some of the most incredible acts of bravery that have ever happened. You see, Abram surely knew and had heard about the defeats of the people around him, the conflict that was taking place all around him because of this invading army. And yet the survivor tells him the news that he probably feared the most. Lot, his nephew, had been taken. We don't know how much time has passed between Genesis 13 and Genesis 14. It could be a few months. It could be a few years. But what we do see is a great selflessness on Abram's part. See, we don't know what the relationship between Abram and Lot is like at this point. We don't know if there are bitter feelings or if the relationship was healthy. But whatever the case may be, Abram, when he hears of Lot's kidnapping, takes action. We see this glimpse of Abram's greatness. He could have very easily done nothing. He could have let Lot face the fate that he, one would say, deserved. He could avoid facing this army that had defeated every single army in the region. And yet Lot show or excuse me Abram shows great courage. He takes his trained men. And this is a word that just refers to those who are competent with weapons. These are shepherds who maybe hadn't been in battle before but had fe- defeated lions, wolves, thieves trying to steal from their flocks. These were men 
who were experienced with weapons. And so he takes his band and he heads to the north, tracking the people who had defeated the kings of city all the way through Canaan, all the way past Galilee, up to, to Dan, which is the, moder- or the, the northernmost part of the future Israelite kingdom. And when he reaches there, he begins to plan. He begins to plan how he's going to take the people back. The kings aren't expecting opposition, and so Abram decides to capitalize on this and decides to attack at night when the guards were down and the people were reveling in the spoils of their victory. And we see here, as we just read, what happens next. Only one verse is dedicated to Abram's military victory. Only one verse. But there's no doubt who is victorious. There's no doubt of who has defeated who? This coalition that has defeated giants, this coalition that has conquered cities throughout Canaan, who has ruled from the Mediterranean all the way to the mountains of Iran, has been soundly defeated by the shepherd Abram. Abram has defeated the one who defeats giants. And so the Mesopotamian coalition fled, and Abram pursued them as far to the north of Damascus, completing his victory. I just want you to imagine the victory and the joy of that day, the joy of victory on the lips of Abram and on his people who followed him. Imagine the joy on the lips of those who had been taken captive moments before, thinking that they had no hope, now filled with a new hope and with joy. And so the people begin their journey home. It's a journey of euphoria. Abram leads a train of rescued people and reconquered territory and possessions over 100 miles south to the valley of Sidim on the way home. In Genesis chapter 12, God had promised Abram that he would, be a, he would make Abram's name great. And we see that here. Through his military victory, Abram's name was on the lips of every single person. Abram was a hero. Abram was a hero. What an incredible story. What a miraculous display of courage that we see from Abram. But if you are familiar with the rest of Abram's life, you might wonder, where does this courage come from? After all, just a few chapters before, Abram sold his, lot to, uh, sold his wife to Pharaoh for fear of his own life. And yet here, in Genesis chapter 14, Abram is standing face to face to the nation who has defeated giants. Where does this courage come from? I think the answer is found in Genesis chapter 13. If you look at the end of Genesis chapter 13, you see that Abram, after he has separated himself from Lot, is assured by God that God will reward him with his own land, that he will one day receive his own land. And so God gives him a guided tour throughout the land of Canaan, showing him all of the beautiful things that will one day belong to Abram and one day belong to Abram's children. As we look at the end of Genesis 13, we see... Abram, spending time with God. That's the key difference between Genesis 12, where Abram is a coward, and Genesis 14, where he is a hero. Simply put, Abram spends time with God. 
He spends time fellowshipping with God, communing with God. He's in the presence of God, and that changes him. When he is in the presence of the one who created him, when he's in the presence of the one who has promised him all of these things, something clicks for Abram. This God is worthy of our trust. This God will provide what he promises. He is faithful to keep his promises. And so when he hears that his nephew has been captured, he doesn't hesitate. He embarks on a rescue mission. He doesn't know if victory is in store for him. But he does know that God will keep his promises, that God is trustworthy, that God is faithful. And so he journeys forth. Abram's courage comes from a place of fellowship with God. Frankly, if you look throughout Scripture and you look at church history, this same courage is on the lips of people throughout church history. All coming from a place of communion with God. In Daniel chapter 3, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are faced with a fiery furnace because they do not bow down to worship a giant idol and they respond in this way if this be so our god whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand but if not be it known to you o king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up these words of defiance are words of courage and that courage comes from one place and one place alone, a rock-solid confidence in who God is, a rock-solid confidence in the one that they have fellowshipped with. This same courage is on the lips of the apostles in the book of Acts. Faced with suffering at the hands of the Jewish leaders, it says this, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Shortly after this, after they have been beaten, they rejoice over the fact that they have been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Courage from communion with God. In the 200s, there were two women, Perpetua and Felicitas, who faced similar situations. They were told to recant or face death. Both refused to recant and placed their continued faith in Jesus and both were killed for their faith. It is this same courage that inspired Henry Martin, who was a missionary, to say these words, If God has work for me to do, I cannot die. A courageous confidence based off of communion with God. Courage through communion. It is this same courage that is on the lips and strengthens the weary and weak knees of Christians in Libya, of Christians in Syria, of Christians in North Korea, of Christians in Nigeria, of Christians in Indonesia, and of Christians in countless other places. Courage through communion with God. See, the courage of Abram reminds us that faith in God and faith in his promises allows us to face the unknown. It allows us to face the unknown with a confidence that only comes from, from him. Abram didn't know what was going to happen to him. He didn't know what, happened, what would happen to him, whether that would be death or glory as he journeyed, journeyed north. But he trusted in God, and he trusted in God's promises to him. 
In the same way, we're not going to face the same sort of situation that Abram faced. But we do face moments of uncertainty. We don't know what stands before us. And yet the same sort of courage for Abram is available to us. If we have faith in God, and if we have faith in his promises, because that leads to courage. Abram continues his journey home, and as he journeys home, he encounters two kings. And these two kings have radically different responses to Abram. Let's continue reading the rest of this chapter. After his return from the defeat of Cato-Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. See, as we turn our attention to these two different responses, we see first the king of Sodom approach Abram. I, I imagine that he's possibly still covered in a little bit of tar. He wasn't able to wash all of it off. And he's, he's relieved that his city has been saved. And yet he's also a little bit nervous. He's a little bit nervous because did he just trade an overlord that was thousands of miles away for one that is just tens of miles away? This man who had defeated the armies who had squashed his rebellion like a bug. And then we also see Melchizedek. Melchizedek, one of the most intriguing characters in all of Scripture. He's only mentioned in three books of the Bible. He's mentioned here in Genesis. He's mentioned in the book of Psalms. And he's mentioned in the book of Hebrews. Only mentioned in three books, but his influence is far greater than that. He was a Canaanite king. Most likely, he was the king of Jerusalem. He was called the king of Salem, which when you translate it means the king of peace. His name, Melchizedek, translated means king of righteousness. He was also a priest of God Most High. In Israel, it was forbidden for a king to be also a priest. This is actually what led to Saul's rejection by God. And so we see that this man, this Melchizedek, has a very unique place before God. He's unique in God's sight. Psalm 110 builds on that a little bit. And David is reflecting on Melchizedek. He's reflecting on his unique status before God. And he says, you know what? Someday when the Messiah comes, when the one who comes that we are waiting for, when he comes, he will not just be a king, but he will also be a priest. He will also be able to lead us in worship to God. The Messiah will one day be like this Melchizedek. And this culminates in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, we see that this is expanded upon that Melchizedek is really just a forerunner of Jesus. He's a real person. He's not Jesus before he became Jesus. He's a real person, but he's pointing us to Christ. Just as Melchizedek was a priest and a king pointing us to God Most High, Jesus is our priest and king who is God Most High. Melchizedek points us to Christ. 
And it's this Melchizedek that comes out to greet Abram with bread and wine, trying to ally himself with this new power broker in that region. But notice what he says to Abram. As he's blessing Abram for his victory, he says this, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek recognizes the true source of Abram's victory. He recognizes where Abram's victory comes from. And Abram agrees. Abram agrees, and that's why he gives him a tithe of everything that he has conquered. By giving this tithe to Melchizedek, who is a representative of God himself, Abram is giving God the glory. Abram is giving God the credit for his victory. It is a gift of gratitude from Abram. So we have Melchizedek, who is just completely Godward focused after Abram returns from victory, recognizing the true source of Abram's victory. And then we see the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom, rather than rejoicing at what Abram has done, is actually a little bit demanding. He's a little bit nervous as he approaches Abram. See, it was ancient custom for the person who uh, conquered uh, different territories or who freed slaves to actually become the owner of those territories, the owner of those possessions, the owner of those slaves. And so, according to ancient custom, Abram was now richer than his wildest dreams. He now owned land throughout Palestine. And the man, the king of Sodom, accepts that. He recognizes that this Abram is now the most powerful man in the region, but he only asks for the people to be able to return to their homes, to be able to return to Sodom. And what we see here is Abram is faced with another great test. He's given great possessions. He's got great land at his disposal. It seems like God has kept his promise in Genesis 12, his promise in Genesis 13 to award Abram with many things. And that's what makes Abram's response surprising once more. Abram gives it all back. Abram gives every single thing back to the king of Sodom, to the king of Gomorrah, to the kings of the nations that had been conquered by these different kings. Abram knew that God did not intend to give him the land through his military victories, but instead had something much better in store for him. And Abram was content with waiting on God to provide that. He was content with waiting on God to show him how he was going to receive the promise. The reality is, I I think that the, the courage that Abram shows here in the last few verses of Genesis 14 is just as significant, if not more so, as the courage that we see at the beginning of Genesis 14. Abram has the courage to give things up. Abram has the strength, the confidence in God to give up all of these things that have fallen into his lap. And what we see is that his faith in God and his faith in his promises leads Abram to cease his striving. Leads us to cease our striving as well. When we find ourselves in situations similar to Abram, when we have the option to trust God to provide for us, or we can find other sources of salvation, other sources of provision, other means to provide for ourselves, what do we do? Do we trust God? Or do we make a way for ourselves? It takes courage 
to say no. It takes courage to place our faith in God rather than the things that are around us, the tangible things that we see each and every way. And that courage is modeled in Abram. See, friends, true courage trusts God to fulfill his promises. And that true courage comes through communion. One pastor puts it this way. The more time you spend immersed in sports, the more time you spend immersed in politics, the more time you spend immersed in whatever your hobby, the more clearly you speak on that issue. You get bolder about those things. You see more. You understand more. So you speak more. That's good. But what about your courage with the gospel? What about your clarity with the things that matter most? The more that we fellowship with God, the more that we commune with God, the more confident we are in Him. The more confident we are in His promises. So true courage. Trust God to fulfill His promises. And that true courage comes from fellowshipping with Him. You might be wondering, well, what are the promises that God has given to us? Because we're not Abram after all. God hasn't promised us great land. God hasn't promised us great wealth. God hasn't promised us great descendants. What are the promises in store for us? The New Testament points out that God will never let us go. The New Testament points out that God will make us a kingdom of priests for his glory. God has even promised us himself. We see that clearly in the book of Ephesians. The promises God has given to us are far better than a patch of dirt in the Middle East. God has promised us himself, and that strengthens us in the face of fear. It gives us courage in the face of doubt. As I mentioned earlier, we're not going to find ourselves in the same situation as Abram. So I think there are three areas where this courage comes into play. First, this trust in God enables us to share with others without fear. This trust in God enables us to share with others without fear. If I took a poll of the people that are in this room and and asked if you were nervous about sharing the good news of Jesus with your friends, with your coworkers, with your family members, and we just said, raise your hands, uh, my guess is a lot of people would, would raise their hands would find themselves struck with fear or at least being nervous about the idea of sharing their faith. The key to overcoming that is through communion with God. It's reminding ourselves of the promises that God has given to us, the promises that God says his word will never return void. His promises that God is in complete control. God knows what he is doing, that God will take care of us. The response is not in our hands. That's between God and that other person. But communion with God, trust in God, gives us courage in the face of sharing the gospel with others. Second thing, this trust in God enables us to walk forward by faith alone. Encourages us and enables us to walk forward by faith alone alone, if you find yourself in a place where you frequently are gripped with fear of the future, God reminds us that he is in charge, that he knows what he is doing. Later today, six people are going to make a great step in their faith journey, the step of baptism. They're going to step forward in faith. They might be feeling a little bit anxious, They might be feeling a little bit nervous about this step. But I can 
utterly, 100% promise them that God will reward them for their step. As they walk forward by faith, God will continue to hold them in the palm of his hand. God will continue to shepherd them. They might not know the future, but they can walk forward confidently with courage because of God and because of his promises. So that's the second one. And finally, this trust in God enables us to say no to other sources of salvation. It enables us to say no to other sources of salvation. You see, Abram had had a wonderful chance to seize land, seize possession, to make himself great, to make his name great through military conquest, and he said no. We also have an opportunity to run elsewhere for safety, run elsewhere for security, for belonging, for rest, for provision, for salvation. It takes courage to say no. And that courage is rooted in a trust in God that comes only from communion with him. Friends, true courage trusts God to fulfill his promises. If you look at the life of Abram and you say, you know what, I'm, I'm not a courageous person whatsoever. I could never do what Abram did. My, my counsel to you, focus on communing with God. Fellowshipping with God. Spending time with God. And from the seed of fellowship will spring the flower of courage. And from the flower of courage will come trust as well. Trust in God for his promises. Trust in God to be faithful. Trust in God to be a source of your courage. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us and how it reveals to us what true courage is. How it reveals to us how we should be like Abram, following you without fear because of a radical confidence that you will keep your promises that you will walk with us, that you will never leave us. God, we are so grateful for the promises found in Scripture. And I pray that as we spend more time fellowshipping with you, that you would strengthen us, embolden us through your Holy Spirit to be confident to do what you have called us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.